Welcome to the podcast. I'm Shira Schoenberg with Commonwealth Magazine. Last February, which now feels like a million years ago, the biggest question facing the legislature was whether to raise more money for the state's ailing transportation system and how to do it. The House proposed a $600 million transportation revenue bill centered on raising the gas tax. Now, amid a global pandemic, the Senate has decided that this is not the time to raise new money for transportation. Instead, it passed a more traditional transportation bond bill that would simply borrow the money for transportation projects. Here with me today to talk about transportation revenues are Chris Dempsey, director of the Transportation Advocacy Coalition, Transportation for Massachusetts, and a former state assistant secretary of transportation, and John Regan, president and CEO of the business group Associated Industries of Massachusetts. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Shira. Thank you. Chris, Chris, Transportation for Massachusetts has been a strong supporter of the need to raise new transportation revenue. Does the pandemic change your view? You know, I think if anything, we now see that the needs for transportation are even greater than they were before. We knew before the pandemic that we had the worst traffic congestion of any region in the United States. We knew that transportation was the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions of any sector of our economy. And that generally it was a system that was not working for people across the state, whether they didn't have a bus that runs in the evenings in Greenfield, or whether they were sitting in a congested bus that was stuck in traffic on the turnpike, or whether they were driving over potholed roads in communities across Massachusetts. And the revenue that the state has to spend on transportation is now going to be less because of all of those financial impacts. Clearly, the legislature needs to be thoughtful and considerate in a time when so many folks are struggling about raising revenue. But if we're not making investments in transportation, then we're not going to have that full and vibrant economic recovery that I know we all want and especially the business community wants and, and John's members want. So we think it's still appropriate to have a conversation about investing more in transportation at this time. John, do you agree with Chris? Do we need to be raising more transportation revenue right now? Well, I think I'd like to challenge the opening statement and to limit this conversation to a question of $600 million in new, in new revenue um, seems to be too limiting. I think both the House and the Senate have passed something like a $17 billion bond bill I think under the circumstances that Chris outlined, you know, those types of investments will go a long way toward making the state's transportation system better. The question becomes what more beyond that 17 billion should, be, should we be looking at? And I think our concern at the moment is that with the economy in such a state of flux, with state finances so far in a state of confusion with respect just to the operating budget, not even to the transportation side of the house. I think adding a, a, a even modest new revenue to the equation right now is not prudent. And so given the fact that there's a $17 billion proposal, spending proposal on the table to work on transportation related issues, it's not as if we're short shrifting the need but we're also trying to balance the concerns around uh, the impact of new taxes on businesses and individuals in the current environment that we're in. 
So why don't you actually dig into that? Because you mentioned this, the Senate passed this $17 billion transportation bond bill. The House has actually said that without new revenue, they're probably going to look to trim that bill. And as we all know, we're in this environment where there's not a lot of state money for projects at all. So given all of the priorities of the state government, you know, we're talking about things like education, human services, business relief, where should transportation rank as a priority, John? Well, I think it's always very high. Um, I would point out that the House Ways and Means Committee did propose an $18 billion spending plan once the amendments were finished. And as the Conference Committee on the Transportation Bond Bill is formed, they will arrive at the right bottom line number commensurate with what they believe the state can afford. I think I'd be hard pressed at this moment to suggest to the general public or to my members that anything between say 14, 15 billion and 18 billion is not a significant investment under these circumstances. And so to the extent that we achieve greater clarity in the years ahead, uh, and, and we all hope for that, I think in terms of the state's financial picture, these are the types of issues that can be revisited when it's more appropriate to do so. Chris, why isn't this you know, 14, 17, $18 billion bond bill enough? Sure, so I think there's two things here. Um, one is that John knows as well as I do that a bond bill is just authorizations. It's not the actual spending of those dollars. That what will happen after this bill is passed is that the governor will determine what he can actually spend under the state's bond cap. And that's a bond cap that we expect might be less in future years because of this reduction in revenue. So on the one hand, we very much agree with the House that this bond bill is not supported by revenue. On the other hand, they could have authorized double the amount of spending in this bill, and it still actually doesn't matter in terms of what projects get built. The second thing that I think is really important here is that when viewers who are maybe a little less attuned to these problems in transportation or more broadly in state government, they hear... 14 or 15 or even $18 billion, they say, wow, that's a lot of money. That must be enough money to fund our transportation system. But that amount is essentially a status quo amount. It says that we're gonna just spend on the same things, the same dollars on the same things next year and three years from now that we did last year and three years ago. And we would challenge people to say, was the system that we had in transportation last year or three years ago? Was that a system that was working for you? Was it working for your families? Was it working for your employees and your customers and your businesses? If the answer to that question was, yeah, that was actually working pretty well, then maybe you don't see a need to increase revenue for transportation. But the polling is actually very clear on this, that across the state, the public supports more investment in transportation, and they're extremely frustrated with that transportation status quo. And so let's not get distracted by 15, $18 billion, if what that really just means at the end of the day is we're getting more of the same. Well, one interesting thing about where we are today compared to where we were a year or three years ago is we've now had this you know, several month experiment where the transportation system has been used very differently than it was a year or three years ago. Um, a lot of offices have work, shifted to work from home policies. There's been less use of the transportation system but the transportation system has also proven vital for getting essential workers like healthcare workers and grocery store workers to their jobs. Chris, did the pandemic change how you view what parts of the transit system most need more investment? So look, obviously the last three months 
have been incredibly disruptive to people's lives. And we are in a very different world now than we were in January and February. And I think everyone needs to acknowledge that and admit that. Um, I would say two things. The first is that I very much think the last few months have exposed some of the deep inequities in our system. You see, for example, a, a number of white collar workers who are able to work from home the four of us are all doing this digitally, right? And it's going to work okay for us and for our families and for the work that we need to do. The same cannot be said for many essential workers, whether they're healthcare workers, grocery store workers, who are vital to our economy. And we've seen, many of us have seen the images of packed buses. I've been on a packed bus myself on the 66 bus recently, where social distancing is essentially impossible given the lack of service that we run on some of those bus lines. And so I think that was true before when workers were already packed in like sardines on some of those buses and some of those trains. Um, but now we understand that it's not just an inconvenience or uncomfortable, it's actually a public health issue to have that be the case. I think the second thing is, um, Shira put me down in the camp that thinks that we are eventually going to go back to a world that looked more or less in many ways like the world that we used to have. It's definitely true we will see more telecommuting, but the Massachusetts economy is one that if telecommuting is really the future, I think we should have some deep suspicions and concerns about what that means for Massachusetts. Because in a world where no one's going to the office anymore, you might as well move to North Carolina for lower housing prices and better weather. You might as well move to Arizona for the same reasons. What makes Massachusetts so unique and so fantastic and so vibrant, the reason why the firms that John represents decide to locate here is because we have incredible downtowns and, and village centers and places where you are like a Kendall Square or a downtown Boston or even a downtown Worcester or a Lawrence you are walking into people and having spontaneous interactions that are literally the types of things that change people's lives and change the economy of the future. We're gonna cure cancer and maybe cure COVID in Kendall Square because it's a place where a lot of really smart people get together and try to fix problems. And that's a metaphor for the entire Massachusetts economy. So I think we should not just say the future is everyone lives in a bubble and no one goes to work anymore. I think we need to say, you know what, we want to get back to a world of vibrant, dynamic places. Massachusetts will only work if that's the case. And let's make sure we're adopting policies that support that. And John, I know the business community, before COVID hit, you had been saying that the transportation system needs to be improved. The debate was more about how much money, where's the money coming from? Has the pandemic changed the way your members are viewing the needs of the transportation system? It has, and I, I do want to echo, I, I hope Chris is right in his assessment. Uh, certainly, you know, if you look back, uh, you know, four, five, six months ago, we were all hustling and bustling our way through Boston and other parts of the Commonwealth and uh, meeting with, with each other in person and learning and interacting and networking and creating deals and business and all that. And God, I hope that comes back sooner rather than later. However, if you look at the polling data and if you look at sort of the conditions across the country in terms of the resurgence of this pandemic and this disease, you know, it, it seems to point to a longer adherence to the work from home uh, effort for those who can do it uh, than we might have initially thought when the whole thing started. I also wanna echo what Chris mentioned in terms of the inequities 
that we're exposed as a result of the pandemic and then events that happened subsequently. There's no denying that there are a group of employees uh, who do not have the opportunity to work from home. Uh, and even if they did, and I think particularly of school children who are being schooled from home, not always having the opportunity to have the right technology, the right access to high-speed internet, the privacy to sit in your own room and do your own homework. So those are all issues that are really complicated uh, and very important for us as a Commonwealth to deal with. What I would say about the work from home experience, however, is that it really has lowered the barriers for exit that normally would exist in the Commonwealth. And what I mean by that is, if you can successfully work from, and I, I have to confess, I forget the two states that Chris mentioned, but we'll say, uh, let's say Rhode Island and New Hampshire, you can still do your job in Boston working from those two places. And if your employer is comfortable with that, and your efficiency is as high or higher than it was when you were in Boston, and you save yourself that commute, that activity will continue. Uh, I have a member, a very large member, multi-national uh, company, uh, 40, 50,000 employees around the world, and they've decided that they're going to, safety is their number one priority, and when they are able to open their offices, they're going to invite their employees to come back and they're going to tell their employees, you are free to decline this invitation if that's what you feel is best. And so a lot of these decisions will be made at the employee level. And if they're fearful, if they're not comfortable, if they're concerned about those crowded buses and trains that Chris referenced, it's quite possible they will continue to work from home uh, and not just for a short period, but it could end up being more of a permanent situation. So I think given all that, and given this, the, the, the fact that we're not entirely certain when and how this all ends, I think a status quo transportation spending plan that recognizes we're not sure how this is all gonna look in two, three, four, five years, coupled with the fact that we have a financial situation that is very uncertain uh, and has huge deficits from a budgetary standpoint, I think it continues to make sense to be a little bit more conservative on spending, uh, particularly on transportation. So let's talk about some of the specifics about revenue generators that have been talked about. Um, the centerpiece of the House plan was raising the gas tax. The Senate has said that they're not going to go and go and raise the gas tax during a time of what I think the latest numbers are 17% unemployment. Um, Chris, how can you ask drivers to pay more for gas at a time when so many people are unemployed and struggling? Is that something that your group would still support? So we would still support that and we're hopeful that the House will raise that in the conference committee as something that should be still on the table. And again, I, I don't want to diminish the fact that the legislature and in particular the Senate in this case is being very cautious and very careful about that conversation. It's a difficult thing to do to say that we're going to raise a tax on someone when they're facing a challenging economic situation. But I would say a couple of things. Um, one is to go back to that polling. Mass Inc. pulled this in May and found that 60% of voters still want to see big changes in the system and only 21% want to go back to the system that we had, to that status quo system. When you look at the gas tax, 
we've raised it a total of three cents since 1991. We are now 33rd in the country when it comes to our gas tax rate. We just got passed by Alabama and by Tennessee. So if we want to have infrastructure that looks like Alabama and Tennessee, then I guess we can stick to where we are. But if we want to have infrastructure that supports that vibrant economy that John and I both want, then we think that an increase of five cents, which is what the house put on the table is totally reasonable. Increasing the gas tax by five cents in Massachusetts would still put us five cents below the national average. I'll get to one more piece here, which has to do with incentives. And then I also want to mention a place where John and I, I think agree on things. Um, when you look at that gas tax rate, as we said, it's gone up three cents since 1991. That's a total increase of 14% since 1991. In the same period of time, MBTA commuter rail fares are up 250% and MBTA bus fares are up 300%. So the message we have been sending to people for the last 30 years is effectively, you should drive more and you should take public transit less. And that's been a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution and the congestion we face on our roads, all of which are problems that I know that John and his members care about. I know that they increasingly care about climate change and certainly the congestion problems were a, um, a, a way that, uh, or an issue that businesses were citing as something that was discouraging them from doing business in Massachusetts. One place that we think addresses both of those problems and we would add more to it is the governor's transportation and climate initiative. And that's something that AIM has supported it possible. They're reassessing that in the, in the midst of this pandemic, but um, it's a really smart multi-state program. It's um, one of the, the best things the governor has done on transportation policy and it's brought together transportation advocates, environmental advocates and the business community to support it. So I don't want anyone to take away from this conversation that John and I disagree on everything. I, I hope AIM is still supportive of that. And it's a place where there's been a lot of collaboration and good work together in the, in the last year or two. And that transportation climate initiative is an initiative that would be basically implemented regionally that would put a price on emissions from the transportation sector. So effectively that would raise the price of gas, but it would do it in a more market-based way and a regional way. That's right. Uh, so John, uh, what would it mean for businesses if the gas tax is increased? And do you still support that transportation and climate initiative? So we do. Um, and I think, uh, you know, notwithstanding the pandemic, I think there's so much work to be done on the transportation carbon initiative that we should continue with that effort, signing up states, uh, advocating for the position that we think is market driven and, and has shown success in other areas like the regional greenhouse gas, gas initiative. Um, and I also want to mention that historically AIM has not opposed tax increases. Uh, in my tenure, we've supported a uh, income tax increase. We've supported a gas tax increase. Um, so we're not an anti-tax organization, and I, I just want to make sure that the listeners understand that. I think the opposition uh, to the gas tax at the moment is we feel that Transportation Carbon Initiative is a better approach, uh, notwithstanding the fact that we do have a pretty low gas tax. And, you know, especially now, and, and you know, every time there's a vote, it's in a context. So while the House voted perhaps in a pre COVID world. The Senate's now voting in a post-COVID world, and I think we have to uh, allow for adjustments based on circumstances that exist in the present. And perhaps even the House might think 
differently now about that vote, given what's going on. So, and, and one final thing I would say about transportation, and, and there are times I think when uh, the debate is incorrectly characterized as like, this is the last time we'll talk about transportation forever. And we know that's not true. And so while, you know, this is a pretty big initiative in terms of the billions of dollars of spending that's proposed and, you know, we might disagree that it's aggressive enough or not aggressive enough. Um, the general court can revisit this next session, the session after, depending on when things start to look and feel more like normal, then we can revisit whether or not the investment levels in transportation are appropriate or not uh, in those circumstances. So can we wait, Chris? Well, we don't want to wait. And we think that there is that urgency there and that the polling is very clear that the public does not want to go back to the old system. I will agree with John, though, that this is an issue that the legislature should be bringing up every session. They should take action now, but they also should be taking action next session and the following session. That's an approach they've started to take on the opioid crisis, where they have realized they can't just file and pass one bill and then it's done and fixed, that it's an evolving situation. Transportation is exactly the same way. There will never be and there never should be a claim that we can do one big massive transportation bill and fix the problem forever and never address it again. It's a constantly evolving environment. It has to do fundamentally, frankly, with human behavior and the incentives that we set about how the system works. And those are always going to be changing and be influenced by new technologies. Ten years ago, Uber and Lyft were not on anybody's radar screen. And now they're a significant share of VMT on our roads and congestion created on our roads. So we were never going to have legislation that addressed them until they became a reality. And now we need to update that regulation um, even further than the law that was passed in 2016. So on that point, John and I certainly agree that we need to be taking many bites at the apple. And that actually that incremental approach in some ways could lead us to much better outcomes than having the hubris to think that we have it all figured out now and we can settle it for the future because we're so sophisticated and so smart. That's not the case. We need to learn. You mentioned Uber and Lyft fees. Both the House and the governor have proposed raising uh, fees on Uber and Lyft rides. Uh, the companies have said this would essentially just raise costs on people without having a huge impact on congestion. Where do each of you stand on Uber and Lyft fees? Maybe Chris and then John? Yeah, so we think this was a missed opportunity by the Senate to include some of their own language here. Um, anytime that the governor and the House are aligned on a policy like this, you would really hope that the Senate would step up too. And we still think that this could come out of conference committee. Uber and Lyft are now contributing 90 million rides per year to our roads. Now that was 2019 and 2020 will probably be lower, but they are clearly a significant part of our transportation system. And the fee that is assessed on those rides that Uber and Lyft pay for every ride is significantly lower than most of our peer regions and states. In a lot of places, those fees are $1, $1.50 per ride, even $2 or more per ride. The governor supports increasing that fee to a dollar. The house has said $1.20. They wanna keep the shared ride fee lower so that they're uh, incentivizing shared trips, which we think is a smart idea. You know, We're a little bit indifferent on exactly how it gets done, but we think that that 20 cent per ride number is too low. And I'm someone that takes a lot of Uber and Lyft rides. It's too low. It doesn't reflect the impact that they're having on our road system. We think that they should be contributing more to make the system work better for everybody. John? So we've expressed some concerns about the Uber and Lyft uh, surcharges. And 
part of it revolves around this issue of, you know, trying to pick winners and losers in terms of who pays for transportation. Uh, you know, those drivers also purchase gasoline and pay the gas tax. They, you know, pay uh, uh, sales and excise taxes on those vehicles. Uh, they pay tolls. So, so they are supporting the transportation infrastructure and the whole conversation about fees, uh, again, and, and probably more so in light of where we are right now, we're not sure this is the right thing to do at the moment. There's another uh, revenue source, potential revenue source that's still alive in the legislature is actually included in the Senate bill, which is this idea of regional ballot initiatives where a community can ask voters on the ballot if they want to raise a certain amount of new taxes to fund a specific transportation project. Uh, John, the business community has been really at the forefront of opposing regional ballot initiatives. Why? One objective concern, sort of separating the fact that this is a, uh, a conversation now occurring in the context of transportation, is this idea of sort of a hodgepodge of lots of different taxing jurisdictions. Uh, it's already complicated enough in terms of property tax and the impact of property tax on the state business climate. I forget exactly what the tax foundation found, but we're in like the bottom of the heap when it comes to competitiveness around property taxes. And to the extent that, again, we're, we're worried about lowering the barriers for exit from the Commonwealth, property tax is already a serious challenge in terms of comparing it to other states. And I, it's 48 or 49, I forget exactly where. I know unemployment insurance is number 50 uh, and probably going to get even worse as time goes on. So the idea that pockets of communities, regions, individual communities would start looking at increasing sales, excise, uh, property tax uh, really concerns us. Chris, I imagine you disagree with this. Yeah, look, this is something that our coalition has supported for many years. And I, I think there's a couple different ways to think about it. One is that this is an issue of local control and empowering cities and towns and local leaders. I think it's why you see people like Mayor Walsh strongly supportive of this idea is it gives him a new tool in the toolbox to get good projects done. Today, essentially the way our transportation funding works is that every single dollar gets filtered either through Washington DC or through Beacon Hill. And you have cities and towns and regions throughout the state that think they can make their own decisions a little bit better than the folks on Beacon Hill or DC. And we wanna give them that power to do that. To be very clear, this would only happen with approval from voters. And so this is not being forced on anyone in any region or city that doesn't want this to occur can do that. But the places that do want those improvements in transportation would be allowed to do so. There are dozens of states around the country that allow this to happen. And they've had a lot of success making transportation improvements through this mechanism. I think we can have a debate about exactly what the right list of potential taxes are there. I take John's point that some taxes are more complicated than others to collect and they create a little bit more confusion to the business community or even to consumers. But there are other taxes where it's actually pretty clean to collect them. And this would again, empower local leaders and residents who ultimately have the power of the ballot box on this to make decisions for themselves, not every, have every dollar go through Beacon Hill or DC. Last question before we wrap up, and I ask you both to be pretty concise in your responses on this one since we're running short of time. Something on transportation will likely land on the governor's desk, probably knowing the way the legislature works on July 31st around midnight. In an ideal world, what should this look like? John, why don't you start? I'd say a, 
uh, continued focus on the bonding and spending through bond uh, authorizations uh, and leaving some of the, the more adventuresome tax proposals aside. Chris? We think we need a package that reflects the fact that the public is tired of the status quo and that they are saying loudly and clearly they don't want to go back to an old system as the economy reopens. And let's support needed investments with needed recurring revenue that helps make those investments possible. And you can read lots more about the transportation revenue debate on commonwealthmagazine.org. Chris Dempsey, Director of Transportation for Massachusetts, and John Regan, President and CEO of AIM. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us.